We are in a teaching series called Manger Throne. And uh, obviously, it's based off of the song we just sung during worship uh, about a king who would be humble enough to leave heaven and come down and enthrone himself in a manger. And uh, what I've been doing each week is taking a line from the song and letting that line inspire where we are going as we learn about Christmas. So today is part three, and the line from the song that I am taking is the part where it says, you chose meekness over majesty and wrapped yourself in humanity. And so today we're going to look at wrapped in humanity which means we're going to look at the incarnation. If you've got your notes, they're in the bulletin or they're also in the church app. They're attached to this video uh, on our website, and they're also attached to this audio if you're listening to the podcast. Here's our big picture point today. As his followers, contemplating the humility and sacrifice that was required of Jesus in the incarnation should transform our attitudes and our lifestyle. As we think about the sacrifice and the humility required of Jesus, that it will change our attitudes and our lifestyle. So similar to last week, where we sought to understand the second coming of Christ, and then we looked at how looking forward to that second advent will change us, today our goal is to understand the incarnation. So we're really going to dig into and teach the incarnation, and then again, we're going to apply it to how is that going to change us individually and as a church? How is that going to change us as we meditate on this beautiful incarnation? All right, so let's get into this. First off, a definition of incarnation. It's a fancy word. What does it mean? It means God being embodied in human flesh. Incarnation. Other religions also use this word, so they believe in gods with a lowercase g embodied in human flesh. But for us, we believe in the one true God, the God with a capital G embodied in human flesh. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. Think about that. Every miracle that you read about in the Bible was either preparing the world for the incarnation, was exhibiting to the world the incarnation, or was showing the results of the incarnation. And every miracle we continue to experience today continues to show the results of the incarnation. One of the theological foundations of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully human. And this is a challenge. We talk about this a lot, the difference between Hebrew thinking versus Greek thinking or Western thinking, right? In Greek thinking, we want to solve all of the either-ors, It has to be one or the other. How could you be fully God and fully human? It doesn't make sense. But remember, in Hebrew thinking, they don't try to solve the either-ors. They love to live in the tension of the both-ands. And so that's what we do. We live in this tension 
that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. And we're going to seek to to embrace that tension today. But let's start with the word incarnation. The word incarnation is one of those words that's not in the Bible. But the teaching of it is clearly in the Bible. But the word itself actually comes from the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was first written in 325 A.D., There was a council that came together uh, to establish unity in Christian doctrine. And then in 381 AD, the council reconvened. I'm guessing probably different people because the people in that first council were probably dead. The council reconvened and edited it a little bit. They didn't change the core foundations. They just changed some of the wording to help with the clarity of it. But what was happening in the 320s AD is there was a teacher in the church named Arius. And his teaching became known as Arianism. Not the Arianism of the Nazis. That's spelled differently. But Arianism in the 320s AD, Arius' teaching was this. He taught that God created Jesus at the moment of conception in Mary's womb. That prior to that moment, Jesus, God the Son, did not exist. And he was created in that moment. Now, clearly, this was a false teaching. It was in direct opposition to the teaching of the Apostle John, who said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But, apparently, Arius was a charismatic teacher, and he was starting to draw a following, and people were starting to believe, and it was creating some conflict within the church. So the church called the Council of Nicaea, Bishops from all over the Roman Empire came together to establish once and for all, these are the foundations of our Christian doctrine. And this is the first part of the Nicene Creed. They wrote, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man." So this is where we get the word incarnate from, is from the Nicene Creed. But they declared, Jesus is God. He is consubstantial with God. That's a fancy word that means he's made of the exact same substance. That he is very God of very God, light of light. So the the early church declared, Jesus is God. He existed with God from the very beginning. And then he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Are you guys with me? Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said it like this. Jesus is the most perfect example of humility. He was God, and yet he stooped to the lowest place. It is not that he ceased to be God, but he began to be something that he was not before. That is God in the weakness of human flesh. And this is the the tension that we're going to explore. 
He didn't cease to be God, but yet he became something different than he was before. Fully God and fully human. So let's start with fully human, right? There are some heresies out there that, that say that Jesus wasn't fully human, that, that uh, yes, he came to earth, but he was something different than humanity. And that is just not true. Let's read some of the writers of the New Testament. The Apostle John said it like this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the Son, as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John declared, The Word became flesh. What about Paul when he was writing to Timothy? He said, Beyond question, great is the mystery of godliness, and then he writes what appears to be an early creed of the church because of the way he writes it in this uh, poetic form. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. He wrote to the church at Rome, he said, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. How about Peter? He wrote, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirits. Jesus was fully human. Now here's the thing. If God's plan was to become a human, he could have become an adult human, right? He could have just showed up at the age of 30, popped onto the scene, and been ready to start his ministry. But no. He was born of a woman, fulfilling the prophetic word of Genesis 3.15 which means he was born as a helpless baby, completely dependent on the care of his parents. He grew up as a child with brothers and sisters in a normal family. He was raised in the synagogue schools and went to school. And when it was time for students to be chosen for secondary school, Jesus was not chosen. And instead, he went into his father's business of being a carpenter. He lived a fully human life. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired, which means he had to eat. He had to drink. He had to sleep. It makes me think of that commercial that's on TV. I just love this commercial because women are so objectified in media, right? They're shown as objects of beauty. They're sexualized. Uh, you know, they're, they're only made to be thought of in terms of their beauty. And there is this commercial on TV that's about some sort of a dietary supplement. And the commercial just says, everybody knows that women poop. All right? And they got women pooping on the commercial. Right? One girl says, hey, you poop, girl. Come on. Women poop. So if we're going to embrace the humanity of Jesus, we just got to embrace the fact that, you know what? Jesus pooped. You poop, Jesus. Come on. He was fully human. 
He felt loneliness. He felt rejection. He felt pain. He got cold. He suffered. Jesus was fully human and lived a fully human life in every way that we do and in every way that we are except for one. And I'm going to teach that one next Sunday. See what I did there? Got to keep you coming back. Hallelujah. I want to read this paragraph to you. This is absolutely beautiful. This was written by St. Augustine of Hippo, one of the early church fathers. Listen to this. Man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey. The truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might grow weak. That the healer might be wounded. That life might die. Come on. Every description of God was countered in the reality of human flesh that Jesus lived in. Jesus was fully human. But what about the other side? That Jesus was fully God. There are some who claim, critics even during the early church, but especially so critics today, who will tell you that Jesus never believed he was God, that he never believed he was the Messiah, that it was an idea that his followers ran with after his death and attributed something to him that he never claimed of himself. And critics will say that. Because there's not any point in the Gospels where Jesus says, plain as day, I am God. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes several I am statements. Ego eimi, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And every one of those statements was a declaration that he was God. But the critics will also argue that the Gospel of John was written much later than all the other Gospels, which means there was time for the church to have changed the teaching before John wrote. Okay, so that means we have to look at the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and ask the question, did Jesus believe he was God? Did Jesus claim to be fully God? Or another way to ask it is, did Jesus believe that he was the Messiah? Messiah ben David that we talked about last week. Because to be the Messiah was synonymous with being God, right? Isaiah chapter 9 that we just sang in that beautiful song, he will be called Everlasting Father. The Messiah would be God. So did Jesus believe that he was God? Well, let's just take the Gospel of Matthew the most Jewish of the four Gospels, because Matthew was writing directly to the Jewish people, Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew never says clearly, I am God. But through the entire Gospel, he does and says things that would only be appropriate if he was God. For example, Jesus spoke with authority. 
when the prophets prophesied, they would say, thus saith the Lord. But when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, you know what he said? He didn't say, thus saith the Lord. He said, but I say. He was speaking as God. And it says the people marveled at the authority that he spoke with. Jesus declared that he had the right and the authority to judge. That would only be appropriate if he was God. He declared that he was the arbiter of who goes to heaven and who doesn't. Right? In Matthew 7, he says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. In in Matthew 10, he says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. In Matthew 25, he says at his glorious second coming, he will sit on the throne and all the nations will be brought to him. He declared that he was the judge. That would only be appropriate if he believed he was God. Some friends lowered a paralytic man through the roof and the first thing Jesus said to him is, son, your sins are forgiven you. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus referred to himself repeatedly as the Son of Man, an Old Testament title for the Messiah. Jesus declared himself to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, a messianic prophecy that said the blind would see and the mute would speak and the lame would walk and freedom would be proclaimed to the captives. And Jesus said he was the fulfillment of that. Jesus said he was greater than the temple. He said he was greater than Jonah, the prophet, and that he was greater than Solomon, the king. You guys remember two weeks ago when we talked about the three offices of Judaism, right? The prophets, the priest, and the king. And Jesus declared he was greater than all three of them. He was greater than the temple, which was the very house of the presence of God. Jesus made himself the central divine character in his parables. Peter declared to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus didn't rebuke him for saying it. He said, bless you for saying it. Only God the Father could have revealed that to you. In front of Caiaphas, the high priest, Jesus confirmed that he was the Christ, so much so that Caiaphas tore his robes and declared blasphemy. In front of Pontius Pilate, Jesus confirmed that he was the king of the Jews. Hanging on the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22, a messianic psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And finally, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said, I am with you always. How could he be with us always unless he was God? So from the start of Matthew to the end, It is clear 100% that Jesus knew he was the Messiah and knew he was God. And for critics to claim otherwise, you would have to completely throw out the Gospels. Jesus believed he was God. How about another question? Did the early church believe he was God? Or was it an idea that was adopted later? Well, what if we looked at the very first sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and using the Messianic Psalms as the basis of his teaching, he comes to the climax of his teaching in Acts 2.36 when he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
both Lord, Kyrios, the same Greek word that was used to translate Yahweh, and Christ, Messiah. So the very first sermon of the New Testament church declares that Jesus is God. In chapter 3, Peter's preaching again, and he calls Jesus the Holy and Righteous One, the Prince of Life. So there is no question that Jesus believed he was God. There is no question that the early church believed he was God. So let's read Colossians chapter 1. This is just a, a beautiful passage of declaring the Godhood of Jesus. Referring to Jesus, it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. This is the verse from which we get the statement that he was fully God. All the fullness of deity dwelled within Jesus and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This refutes the teaching of Arianism, right? He was there from the beginning. He created everything. He holds all things together. When he came to earth, he was the image of the invisible God. When we saw him in the flesh, we saw God. All the fullness of deity dwelled within him. So he was fully God, which there's four words that we use to describe the attributes of God. We've got omnipresent, which means he's everywhere all the time. He's not bound by time like we are. He's not bound by location. He's everywhere all the time. He's omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows everything that's going on. He knows every thought of man's heart. We have omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. He can do anything. And we have omnisapient, which means he possesses all wisdom. He always knows the right thing to do. So Jesus was fully God, but limited by his own choice. So we can see in Jesus all the aspects of being fully God, yet limited in certain ways. So in your notes, I wrote it like this. The first one is that the infinite became finite. The one who is not bound by time, who existed eternally before time, and who will exist eternally after time, bound himself to the timeline. When he took on human flesh, he could only be in one place at one time. The infinite became finite. He could no longer be everywhere at once because the uncontainable had chosen to contain himself in human flesh. The second one is that the omniscient needed revelation. 
the omniscient needed revelation. Jesus shows signs of his omniscience that he knows everything. He knows what people are thinking, even when they don't say it out loud. He knows the conditions of people's hearts. He even knows what's going to happen, right? He knew exactly where a young donkey was tied up, and he knew exactly what the owners would say when his disciples started untying the donkey. So Jesus shows his omniscience, yet by taking on humanity, he put himself by choice in a place where he needed revelation. He prayed all night long before he chose his 12 disciples because he needed the Father to reveal it to him. Jesus declared, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. He needed revelation from the Father to know what to do day by day in his life on earth. The omniscient needed revelation. And finally, the omnipotent never benefited himself. Jesus was all-powerful, but he would never use that power for his own benefit. When being tempted by the devil, the devil said, turn those stones into bread. Come on, you haven't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. You've got to be starving. Turn that stone into bread. And Jesus said, no, because man lives by more than bread alone. When the temple guard came to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him, Jesus said, I could call down 10,000 angels right now to stop you, but I'm not going to. The omnipotent never benefited himself. So Jesus was fully God, yet limited his godhood by his choice to take on human flesh. He was fully God, and he was fully human. That's the balance that we live in. And we're going to explore that a little bit more next week. But I want you to understand the beauty of what happened when the baby was conceived in Mary's womb and was born on that Christmas morning. Jesus took the most humblest of positions, and God put himself completely, completely dependent on the care of humanity. Think about that. Right? The Bible says Jesus holds all things together. Well, he didn't stop holding all things together when he took on humanity. So he still kept that part of his omnipotence. So what I want to do is I want to take our core passage in Philippians chapter 2, and I want to break it down, and then we're going to look at how does this incarnation, how does understanding what Jesus did inspire us today? Here we go. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore... Well, anytime you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is it therefore? What was Paul just saying at the end of chapter 1? Well, he was just talking about the church living a life worthy of its calling. Live the way Jesus called you to live. You have been crucified with Christ. It's not you that live. Therefore, based on this statement that the church should live in a way that reflects Christ Jesus... He pleads to them based off of, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Now, Paul's not saying that those things don't exist in the church. What he's saying 
is that these things should be the most obvious things that exist in any church. He's saying if there's just a little bit of these things, well, of course there's a little bit of these things because if there's not, it wouldn't be a church because Jesus wouldn't be in it. Every church should have the encouragement that comes from Christ. Every church should have the comfort that comes from love. Every church should have the fellowship that comes from the Holy Spirit. And every church should have affection and compassion for one another. If we don't have those things, we're not the church. He says, so if you've got even just a little bit of that, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So how is the church going to fulfill what Paul commanded them, which was to live a life worthy of Christ, to do the things that God called you to do? Unity, being of the same mind, the same love, having the same spirit, intent on the same purpose. He goes on to say, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceits, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Another hallmark of the church is that we do what is best for the church. We do what is best for others, not for ourselves. We're not just looking out for our personal interests. We're looking out for the good of the Ohana. So how do we do that? Paul tells us, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That word, to be grasped, means obviously to hang on to, but can also mean to take or to steal, right? Paul is implying that for Jesus to remain in heaven, he would have been hanging on to something that was not his to hang on to. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bond servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. How can this shape our lives today? First is this principle that we should live by, and that is that attitude determines actions. Attitude determines actions. Paul said, have this same attitude in you that Christ Jesus had. So that means Jesus had an attitude. What was his attitude? That equality with God was not something that he had to hang on to. He was willing to let go. He was willing to empty himself. He was willing to step away from the throne of heaven. And because of that attitude, it determined his actions. He came to earth and was conceived as a newborn baby. Attitude determines actions. So this Christmas season, as we meditate on the incarnation, let's let it change our attitude. Because a different attitude will produce a different result. A different attitude will produce a different lifestyle. Can we take on the same attitude that Christ Jesus had?
What will happen is the incarnation will maintain our unity and our focus. Right? He said, be of the same mind, the same heart, the same spirit, and be intent on the same purpose. How do we get to that place? Man, we're all different. We come from different backgrounds. We have different personalities. We have different likes and dislikes. We come from different cultures, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic status. We all come in difference. How do we have this unity? How are we of the same mind and the same spirits? Because we think about the humility of the incarnation, that Jesus chose meekness over majesty. And when we keep that at the forefront of our minds, we recognize that's the one thing that binds us all together. It keeps us focused because Jesus was willing to leave heaven for a purpose. What was his purpose? He declared it was to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what he sacrificed for. And so if we remember that, then we can stay focused on the same purpose. Because when we're not focused on the purpose of seeking and saving a lost world, making and multiplying disciples, instead we get caught up in our petty differences. And we lose focus and we argue and, and, and we have disagreements and we have conflicts. But when we keep our intently focused on one purpose, because that's what Jesus did, it's going to keep us unified as a church. The incarnation inspires our humility and sacrifice. When Jesus came to the earth, humility was not a character trait that was celebrated. Within the Roman Empire and within the ancient world at that time, what was celebrated was ego and pride and accomplishments and victory and schooling and heritage and who was your rabbi and what family did you come from. Nowadays, we think of humility as, well, yeah, of course humility is a good trait, but it was not when Jesus came on the scene. His humility changed everything. And it should change everything for us. If Jesus was willing to let go, then shouldn't we be willing to let go? If Jesus was willing to sacrifice, God, a perfect human, shouldn't we be willing to sacrifice? I want to tell a story on myself just so you guys know how big of a nerd I am. But how this is applied in my life so I play a lot of fantasy football, and uh, there was a game a few weeks ago that I believed that our scoring system scored incorrectly, and I should have won the game. So I called the commissioners of the league, and we were on the phone for over half an hour as I argued my stance like I was in a court of law that I absolutely deserved those points and I should have won that game and I convinced these guys. And after over 30 minutes off the phone, I hang up the phone and Shannon, who was sitting there the whole time, was just like, you're such a nerd. Okay, so... 
But now the commissioner had to call the other guy and tell the other guy, hey, we're going to make a scoring change, and you're going to lose that game. Well, the other guy went ballistic. He just went absolutely nuclear. That's it. I'm quitting the league. I don't even want to talk to you guys anymore. I can't believe you guys would do this to me. So my buddy Caleb was like, hang on, hang on, hold on. Let's all take a step back and think about this. And he texted me, and he said, Aaron, man, the other guy went nuclear. And the moment I read the texts, the Holy Spirit spoke to me loud and clear and said, relationships are more important than being right. Because I knew I was right. But winning a make-believe football game should not be worth sacrificing a relationship. I know that guy. I went to church with him for years at City Harvest Church. There may come a day in the future where he needs me to minister to him or I need him to minister to me. And I could have sacrificed that relationship to win a fantasy football game. But I decided to let go. And being right didn't matter anymore. And I told Caleb, call him back and tell him, forget it. Let him have the win. His friendship is more important than that. The incarnation inspires our humility and our sacrifice. And if it can inspire us in something that doesn't even matter, like fantasy football, even though I will say God blessed me and I still made the playoffs anyway. Hallelujah. Can we have that same humility and sacrifice in the things that matter most? Let me have the worship team come back up today. And finally, the incarnation calls us to obedience. When Jesus tells us to do something, he expects us to do it. He was bold enough to say, if you love me, you'll listen to me. If you love me, you'll do what I say. Jesus demands obedience. And what gives him the authority and the right to demand that obedience from our lives? Because he did it first. Philippians 2 said he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The most humiliating, shameful, painful form of death there is. Because Jesus was obedient in the incarnation, because God was willing to die to do what was expected of him, then he can call us to obedience. And every time God tells us to do something that we don't want to do, let's remember the incarnation. Every time God tells us to repent of a sinful behavior and we don't want to repent, Let's remember the incarnation. Because Jesus did it first, we can be obedient. And we can do what he asks, because what he asks is always best. Let me say that again, because what he asks is always best. Come on, can I have the altar ministry team come forward today? Jesus, we rejoice in the incarnation. We rejoice in the standard of meekness that you set. 
we rejoice in your willingness to become like us so that we could become more like you. So today, Lord, we meditate on the incarnation. We thank, Lord, of the baby in a manger, the king who left heaven and took on humanity, the one who desired to be known by all, so he made himself completely anonymous. The one who wanted all of us to depend completely on him. So you made yourself completely dependent on us. And in that, Lord, we are inspired to be a little different. Would you change something in us today, Lord? Would you give us the strength to let go of something that we've been holding on to? Would you give us the humility, Lord, to take a step back and not get what we deserve because there's a greater reward in humility? Would you call us to sacrifice for the good of others? Would you call us to humble ourselves for the good of the church? Would you call us into a greater unity together as your body here, Lord, at Kauai Bible Church? Would you bring our focus back to what matters most, winning the lost and making disciples? Jesus, Jesus, because it mattered so much to you that you left heaven and experienced humanity and gave it all for us. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I want to invite you to come forward for prayer today. If you need prayer, if anything in this message is stirring you today, in the area of unity, in the area of focus, in the area of humility, in the area of sacrifice, in the area of obedience, if anything is stirring in you today, come receive prayer. Or if you have any needs in your life or your family, come receive prayer today.